0: My name is Lucas, I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church as well, and we are so glad that you're here. And We, uh, we believe in prayer, we believe that prayer is a laying of the foundations upon what Him. Up. Well, yes, and lead us in this moment, that God, this would be more than just a static moment of hearing someone drove on from a stage, but God, it would be a time of experiencing your still small voice in our lives, in my life. That you would lead, you would guide me. That you would take each of us on a journey of knowing you and looking more like your son each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone who is in agreement said, "Amen." Amen. <laughs> All right. I love hiking. Anybody with me? Any hikers in the room? You're in the. You're living in the right space. You're living in the right place. That's for sure. Uh, I often take my dog into the backwoods and. And the places that you get to discover, in the solitude of the woods, you get to, you get to discover so many different things, so many beautiful things. I, I often take my kids and I go, let's, let's just see what's around that bend. And my kids are kind of like, uh, right? Who, 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 who just has an obsession with, let's just see just what's around that next bend. Let, let's just go discover something new. And there's something beautiful and awe-inspiring when you take around that next bend and you find that little lake or you find that river or you begin to climb up and it's hard work and, and you come out of the tree line and now it's just rock and it's open spaces and you begin to see and then you hit that summit. Last uh, fall, uh, Wally Cowlard and I, we, we went up Tin Hat Mountain. Who's been up Tin Hat Mountain? Oh my goodness. And you get to the top of that mountain with 360-degree views. There's something awe-inspiring about being out in nature. Moments where you stand at the seashore and you look out and it's just beautiful. And it makes you feel so small. But then things can take a turn, can't they? the very same trail that you walked on, the very same places that you roamed become a little bit scarier when the light begins to fade. Or you find yourself on that trek and that adventure and then you hurt yourself and injure yourself and all of a sudden, the tables have turned. That very thing that brought you awe and inspiration and the beauty becomes the very obstacle for life and death. We don't like those moments. We don't like those moments when when the beauty of God's creation caused us to feel so small and so insignificant. Those are scary moments. If you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Worship is a three-part act. Rejoicing, reverence, and response. Worship is a three-part act. Rejoicing, reverence, and response. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 95. We're in the middle of a series entitled Raw, When Hurt Leads to Hope. And what we've been doing is trying to discover in the Psalms these moments of of angst, these moments of rawness of, of the human condition when things turn from, from pain to praise, when they turn from hurt to hope, and we want to dig into that gap. What's going on in these gaps? What is happening? And today we want to explore worship. If you don't have your Bibles or you don't have a Bible, um, we would love to resource you with the Bible. So if you just pull out your phone, even right now, you're allowed to pull out your phone in church. That's okay. If somebody told you otherwise, they're wrong. And if you're on Twitter, I'll forgive you. It's all good. If you're checking the score, that's okay. Just don't tell me because I got a PVR. But if you pull out your phones, visit myevangel.church forward slash We would love to be able to just resource you with a digital Bible, or if you fill out the form there, we would love to get a physical Bible, a hard copy Bible into your hands, free of charge. It's our gift to you. We believe so, that is so important that people are resourced with God's word, because it'll change your life. We believe that. So are you there, Psalm 95? Who's there? Come on, friends. Who's there? Yeah, we're there? All right. All right. Uh, Just a little bit of history to the psalm. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but we do know that there's a bit of an interruption in the middle of the psalm. As we read it, just look for it. Let let me know if you find it. There's an interruption in this psalm. So, Psalm 95, let's read it together. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways therefore i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest this psalm gives us such a great template when it comes to our acts of worship worship in three parts if you will verses 1 to 5 they point us to the act of rejoicing oh come there's there's this invitation by the psalmist who's leading this act of worship in community To lift up the Lord, the one who saves. But but it's more than just invitation, it's also exhortation. Now, exhortation is not a word that we often use. Who uses Who used the word exhortation this week in your interactions with people? None of us. We, We don't often use this word, but we need to understand what it means because it's important. Exhortation means this. An address or communication emphatically urging someone to do something. An address or communication emphatically urging someone to do something. This is the role of the worship leader. This is the role of the psalmist. He is emphatically urging the people to lift up and to rejoice and to worship. He says, oh, come. He says, let us, let us. This is happening in community. At Evangel, one of our eight values is, you were made for community, welcome home. Sometimes it's when community exhorts, when, when community emphatically urges one another that we rise to the occasion of being worshipers. And those who rejoice. Because sometimes we limp into a service and we feel as though we have nothing to give. You've ever been there? Maybe some of you limped into this service today coming out of this week. Limped in with woundedness, limped in with pain, limped in with more questions than answers. Or we limp into our community groups or, or a coffee meeting with other believers. But the power of community is we can invite, we can encourage, we can even exhort, emphatically urge one another to these acts of rejoicing until our feelings catch up. I think myself or Lisa, we told this story already, but I want to share it again because it so beautifully describes this sort of, exhortation of community towards these acts of rejoicing and worship. Uh, we were at a camp, and we had a couple who shared at that camp, and it was, it was the type of sharing that was very, very vulnerable because it wasn't. they were telling their story, and it was a story of pain. It was a story of hardship, and it was a story that wasn't past tense. You know how it's, sometimes it's easy to tell a story about a long time ago a thing you went through that was really, really hard, but now you're on the other side of it. This was a story where they seemed to still be in the middle of it. And so they're being extremely vulnerable with us in community. And she said this, and I'll never forget it. She said, during worship at this camp, I have just been sitting because I don't have it in me. And you as community have been singing over me. How many know that the word of God says that that God sings over you? And in those moments, she said, you gave me the strength. In your acts of worship, you encouraged me, you exhorted me to a place where I was able to muster up, despite my feelings, despite the journey I was going through, to muster up the strength to say, rise up, O my soul, and bless the Lord. And begin to rejoice in his goodness and who he is. Rejoicing is often an act of faith in this broken world. And it's in community that we invite and emphatically call one another to rejoice. I love that. Because you weren't meant to do it alone. Because if you tried living out this life and this faith and this journey alone, your rejoicing would be far and in between. But we call one another. We rally one another. The psalmist is painting a picture of a people who rejoice at the return of a victorious king in the language here. In our New Testament context, we rejoice because we recognize Jesus as the risen king who won our salvation. Often we come into moments of worship with distractions or or with an apathetic position of our hearts. And it takes community to stir us up again, to exhort us, to emphatically call one another to this moment of celebrating what Jesus did, this new reality that we walk in. Rejoicing is a discipline, rejoicing is a changing of perspective. Rejoicing is a coming into alignment with the finished work of Jesus. He is great. Verse 3 says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. We we make a point of recognizing that he's king over all. The psalmist goes on as as they lead the people in this act of rejoicing. In verse 4, in his hand. Are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Two things to notice about this description of God. Creation was both created by his hands and is in his hands. Worship and rejoicing is about recognizing that God is both the creator and the sustainer of your life. This morning in the prayer room, I, 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 I don't do it enough. But I often pray this prayer because I really believe it to be true. I pray, Lord, thank you for this new day that you have made as an extension of your mercy towards humanity. This new day, when the sun rose today, friends, it was an extension of mercy and grace towards humanity so that someone else might hear the good news and be changed by this revealed Jesus, our victorious king. We need to rejoice in the little things because he both has created life, but he sustains life, and we rejoice in that. Worship is a three-part act, rejoicing, reverence, and response. But rejoicing and turning our eyes collectively always leads us to raw moments of worship. As we continue, we we see a switch is flipped and we walk into these raw, humbling acts of worship. The kind of worship that shapes us, that aligns our hearts to his and makes us look different. The psalmist, he's leading us to this conclusion, the only viable outcome to celebrating the greatness of God is recognizing our smallness before him. When you begin to turn your eyes to the greatness and the awesomeness and the grandeur of our God, you can't help but put your life in that perspective. Verse six says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Notice the switch now. Worship is a three-part act. Notice the switch. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Let's bring it back to that mountaintop where you can take in a lot of the world around you. Or those moments late at night where you go out, my son and I, we went out walking the dog uh, this week and it was, just, it was late at night and we went over to uh, Sunset Park in Wildwood and, and just looked up and you saw the stars and the Milky Way and you could just see deep into the galaxy and the more you stare, the more you can see and the more you stare, and the more you can see, the smaller you feel in perspective of the greatness of creation. My favorite thing, there's, there's moments when the tide is out and the beach is big and, and, and it starts coming back in and you stand there and for some reason, I don't know what the optics, I don't know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's some science around the optics of this, but you stand at the ocean shore and there's just moments, it's not all the time, but there's moments where it just feels so big. And expansive and you look out and there's there's just clear air and you can see far and and you just feel so small. We're coming into storm season here at the ocean. Some of you like to go to Euclid and, and Tofino and watch the waves roar in. Talk about a moment of feeling small and vulnerable. And then we consider, That those very things that cause us to feel small and vulnerable were created. Were created by a God who is bigger and greater than all of it. And he literally holds it all in the palm of his hands. And the only thing we can do in those moments is kneel before the Lord God our maker. When we rejoice, we declare God as creator of it all. We declare him as as our salvation and the perspective we gain leads us to our knees. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Derek Kidner, he says this about this moment and this transition in this psalm. He says, this is the deep and basic note of worship without which the joyful noise of the opening will be shrill and self-indulgent. This is the deep and basic note of worship, without which the joyful noise of the opening will be shrill and self-indulgent. In other words, if rejoicing doesn't lead you to reverence, In the presence of God, it's just noise. It's just noise. It's a humbling moment in the presence of God. And these are the moments that we don't often welcome. Especially if we've adopted this philosophy of living that that says we are the masters of our own faith if the enemy has come in and convinced us that, that we are the writers of our own story, we, we much prefer the narrative where we are in control. And worship requires an attitude that leads our flesh, our humanness, to a place of being rubbed raw in the wrong way. This is the raw moments of worship. It leads us to a submission and a turning over of our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Again, we don't do it solely on our own, but the context of this worship is in gathered community of faith. Notice he says, Oh, come. He says, Let us, let us twice. Our God, we are the sheep. he's, He's proclaiming this in community. Community is essential to the act of worship because we're reminded that this act of worship is bigger than just our lives. The submission of our lives is bigger than just us. I wish someone had years ago talked to me about the hard, sacrificial, and painful acts of worship that exists in this journey of faith. I wish somebody had told me about that early. I grew up in a very charismatic kind of movement. Everything was really feel good. It really, really feel good. It was all about just chasing the high and feeling good. and woo! There was lots of joyful noise, you know what I'm talking about. I, w- I wish someone had led me to this place of understanding that there's, there's pain in worship. There's a rawness in worship because worship leads our flesh to places our flesh doesn't want to go. kind of worship that leads us to be cut by God's truth deep in our souls and the pain of what the scriptures call our flesh that is so self-absorbed and is the center of its own universe. David, he uses adjectives throughout his psalms such as broken and contrite. It's a telling story about this journey of worship as he understood it. Worship is a three-part act, rejoicing, reverence, and response. And this kind of reverence is a recognizing of the lordship of Christ. Not, Not just an existential sort of theoretical kind of way, but it's a deep and personal intrusive kind of way. Now, I know you've all grown up hearing that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and he'll never interrupt I don't believe that fully to be true. The the Holy Spirit will never take away your ability to choose. Because love demands choice. But the Holy Spirit will interrupt your life, I guarantee you. He will interrupt your life in ways that are sometimes painful. We read about it as we read from 1 Corinthians 11. It says... Judge yourself lest you be judged. And when God judges you, he disciplines you. Did you you know that our good, good father, our daddy God, sometimes pulls out the rod and gives you a spank? Who's ever been spanked by God? He'll interrupt your life to put you back on course. And our act of worship in that moment is choosing the lesson. Our act of worship in that moment is choosing the hard thing, the painful thing. So much of this life and this journey of faith and us being worshipers is choosing the hard thing. Would God give us the grace to do so? The grace to be led in our rejoicing to a perspective of God as not just Savior, but as Lord and King over my life. Leading me to my knees. But this is the moment where we see a bit of a literary switch. And I don't know if you noticed, I asked if you would be looking out for this, this switch and you see it in the language you see, God begins to speak here. And, and, and the perspective of many contemporary scholars um, uses the word interruption. It's as though this moment of community, this moment of community worship being led by the psalmist, is now being interrupted by the prophet with a word from God. Let, let, let's read it from Psalm 95. Verse seven, the second part of seven. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed. Okay, by the way, that word loathed, that's actually kind of a a light interpretation. That's actually kind of a nice interpretation of what that word really means. The word disgust is a better English interpretation. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. right in the middle of this raw and vulnerable moment, there's an interruption. This moment where it seems God wants to say something important. And I use the word interruption purposely here because many of the uh, more classical scholars that I looked at, they, they actually treat this as like a separate distinct moment in the psalm. They don't treat it as part of the whole. They kind of they weren't able to kind of bring it into this place of, okay, how do we go from this rejoicing and reverence, and all of a sudden this hardline switch happens. And so many of the classic scholars, they kind of treated it as something different, but, but the more contemporary scholars that I, I read began talking about it through the language of community. And so instead of looking at it as one man writing down, writing out this psalm, they looked at it as in community coming together, the psalmist leading, and then the prophet interrupting. The prophet coming in with a word from God. And it so fits the whole of this psalm, because it leads us, it leads us to response. The song leader leads, and at times the prophet of God interjects. There are a couple of interesting examples that the psalmist brings back to the attention of the hearers. He, he brings back the place of Meribah and, and Massa. And, and these are two moments in Israel's history that where, where Israel, one, they disputed with God, and then the second, they tested God. These are moments where God decided that Moses wasn't going to enter the promised land. These are not highlight moments in the life of Israel. These are moments where Israel turned their backs on God and disputed him and complained and tested him. And neither of those turned out great for the people or for Moses who ended up not seeing the promised land in his lifetime. It's really a warning, a reminder of the worst moments and what they cost the people of Israel Now, now you might think to yourself, okay, what does that have to do with us today then? Because don't we live, you know, Jesus and New Testament and New Covenant and things are different now, right? In fact, you might try to dismiss this moment as, as unrelated to you or to your context. But we can't. Because the writer of Hebrews brings it up again. Whoever he was, he brings it up again. In Hebrews... Chapter 3, verse 7 to 18. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to show you the first slide. Do you you, you recognize that? He's quoting Psalm 95. In the New Testament, post-Jesus, New Covenant, he's quoting Psalm 95. But then he gives some commentary to it for us. He gives some commentary. In verse 12, he says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You know it's possible to fall away from the living God? But exhort, there's that word, exhort, what does that mean? Emphatically urge one another every day As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's referencing those two moments in the history of Israel. Verse 16, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Notice how the writer calls this this disbelief, this falling away from faith, a result of the deceitfulness of sin. That the nature of sin and the nature of our flesh is more in alignment than we like to think. The nature of sin and the nature of this flesh is much more in alignment than we like to think. This is why sin can deceive us so easily. This is why it's said that, that our heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it. Let me give you an example. Well, I, I, for many, many years, I had this, this habit that when somebody wanted to give me any kind of praise or say anything good about me or, or compliment me in any way, I would just brush it off very, very quickly. Like, like, I wouldn't even say thank you. I would just brush it off really, really quickly. And, and for many, many years, I thought that's what it looked like to be humble. I thought for many years, this is humility. Not accepting any kind of praise, any kind of thanks, any kind of compliment. This is humility. It wasn't until years later that the Holy Spirit began to deal some areas of my heart. And I realized that the reason I did that was not humility, it was Pride. And here's why it was pride is because I didn't believe them because I was so insecure. I was wounded and insecure, and when people wanted to praise me or compliment me or say anything good about me, I wanted to very quickly just let that run off my back as fast as possible because I was proud. Insecurity, by the way, is an inverted form of pride. And so the Holy Spirit had to reveal the deceitfulness that sin had convinced me that I was walking in humility when really I was walking in acts of pride and woundedness and deep insecurity and he wanted to begin to bring healing to that area of my life not so I could go around being puffed up and but so that I could walk in true humility But friends, sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. And the Holy Spirit will take a lifetime to walk you through the deep deceit of sin that still exists in your life and in my life. But if we don't take that journey, if we don't bend our knee before before the Lordship of Jesus, that won't begin to happen. And the response... To those hard moments is to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Because sin always leads to death, and the pathway that it takes is unbelief. Notice the path that the psalmist takes in this three part act of worship rejoicing, to reverence, to response. The, the subtitle of Craig Rochelle's book, uh, if you haven't read it, it's a, it's a great book. It's called The Christian Atheist. The Christian Atheist. And the subtitle says this, Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. This is what we're being warned about here. Worship in three parts always leads us to response, and response leads us to life change. It leads us to living differently and seeing the world differently. It leads us to submitting our attitudes and our perspectives and our lives to him and bringing change. Worship in three parts always leads us to response and response always leads us to life change. You are ask the worship team to come Friends, if if you're worshiping right, there's a trajectory in your life to looking more and more like Jesus each day. That's the definition of worship. Because often we can get so caught up in these moments where we interpret worship as this gathering. We come into this place, right? And we sing these songs, and it's beautiful, and it's uplifting. And we rejoice. We're good at rejoicing, friends. We're Pentecostal. At least we should be. We should at least be like halfway decent at rejoicing. But then there's these moments where we move from rejoicing, we move into this place of taking a knee. And this posture of taking a knee is... Submission. It's submission. The posture of, as you sometimes, maybe you're exploring faith and you see people at times raise their hands in church. But what what is raising your hands? It's It's a universal marker. It's a universal symbol for surrender. I give up, I surrender. And these postures lead us and remind us that we are not in control, that we aren't writing our story, but we've been invited into a bigger story, a much bigger story. And that story has one star. It's Jesus. The story of the Old Testament, all the way to Revelation coming back, is all about Jesus and our acts of worship lead us to a place where we realize that in a deep way that we've been invited into his story and because we've been invited into his story he needs to change us he needs to mold us He needs to refine us. He needs to put us in fire at times. But he promises in the midst of the fire, he'll be standing with us. And so our act of worship moves from rejoicing to reverence. But if our acts of worship, rejoicing, reverence, don't translate to us getting up off our knees and walking out of sacred moments in his presence different, we haven't walked in the fullness of worship. Because worship, as we're warned by the prophet in this psalm, leads us to life change it leads us to life change we've been talking over the season a lot about renewal and revival that's what renewal and revival look like lives of worship That's what renewal and revival look like. So Holy Spirit, convince us. Convince us that you're worthy of worship. Convince us, Lord, that the Son, Jesus Christ, is worthy of all of our worship all of our lives, not just as Savior, but also as Lord. We rejoice in who you are. We rejoice in who you've made us to be. But Lord, as we compare our lives to the awesome God, we come to our knees, we bow in reverence, and we submit our lives to you. God, we say we don't want to be walking in the deceitfulness of sin, but rather we invite your Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to know us, and to give us the grace to get up off our knees different, to do the hard things. do the painful things at times as our acts of worship. That God, through our lives, we would be telling your story. That through our actions and our words and our attitudes, we would be telling the story of Jesus. we stand together friends for a moment we're not going to close with a song of worship because I think it would be a little redundant at this point instead I just want to speak a word of benediction over you and then by his grace let's leave this place different Let's leave this place convinced of some things. Let's leave this place even convicted of some things. So may you be a people who worship our Savior in spirit and in truth. May you be convinced that he's a merciful God and your repentance will be met with mercy. And your times on your knees before your Savior will be met by grace and strength to get up looking different. Friends, may you go in the grace and the power and the strength of our Holy Spirit. And may your lives Even this week, tell the story of Jesus. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen.